Folks, our passage today is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what I want to talk about is that there's a promise, uh, there's a fulfillment to that promise, and then I want to talk about what all of that means. So the first part is what God promises. The second part is what what is fulfilled, what Christ fulfills in that promise. And thirdly, let's examine what all of that means for us. First off, a promise. This passage begins with David. He gets the brilliant idea uh, to build a new place of worship. He wants to build God a house, a new place for the Ark of the Covenant. He's been uh, getting established himself. He's in his own new palace, and he sort of looks over to where uh, the worship for Yahweh is happening over in the tent and says, you know, it kind of makes sense that God would have his own house for better or for ill. This is how he thinks. And we read about this in First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2, where he says, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building. And so he tells Nathan, the prophet, this is, uh, you know, his pastor or his spiritual mentor, and Nathan says, yep, that sounds good, David, you know, have at her. But later that night, God speaks to Nathan with a different plan for David. David had said, God, I want to build you a house, meaning a a temple. But God says, no, thank you, David. Actually, I'm going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty or a royal lineage. And this promise that God makes in this chapter is called the Davidic covenant. God makes a promise to establish David's throne eternally. The first thing for us to reflect on in this is that David had a plan for his life. He had uh, an idea of where things were headed for him. But God took this idea and and he pointed it in a new direction. He he reframed David's idea and, and actually gave David a part to play in God's own plan for salvation for the world. See, it's interesting. God puts dreams and desires on our hearts And we may think they point in a particular direction. We may think our lives are headed in this way. And yet sometimes God takes those and and tweaks them slightly. He he changes course for us. He points us in a new direction and, and reframes our desires and our vision to be in line with what he would do. And this is true following God. God doesn't really need us, but he loves us. And he actually loves working in us. And the Christian life then is is less about what we do for God, though that is important, but it's more about learning what God wants to do within us and through us. And this is the lesson that David learns. So the question for us might be, Lord, what do you want to cultivate within me? What, What dreams have you put on my heart? What part are you calling me to play in in your kingdom? Jesus, what does it mean to follow you? And, and, and here's my dreams. Here's my own vision. And help me to be in line with what you would want, Lord. Obviously, this is a, a turning point in David's life. But it's also a key passage in God's plan of salvation. Because see, throughout Israel's story, if you read through uh, Israel's scriptures, through the Old Testament, we find that God has been about making a new covenant family. A, a faithful people through whom he wants to bless the world and bring the nations back into relationship with himself. 
And now God promises to further that, that plan by establishing a, a, a future king from David's line, one who will live righteously and reign eternally. It's a new development in God's plan of salvation. Yet get this, this is the astonishing thing. Even in this covenant promise, even as God makes this promise, God knows full well that the future kings will not uphold the covenant. They will fall into sin. So God promises to establish David's line, but he knows that David's line is not going to live for him. They're going to forsake the covenant. They're going to choose evil. And yet God's loving faithfulness is stronger than our human sinfulness. God's loving faithfulness is stronger than human sinfulness. Think, for example, of how these kings are described. Listen to how King Jehoram is described in Second Chronicles 21. God considered King Jehoram an evil man. There it is, right up front. He was not a good dude. But despite that, because of his covenant with David... God was not yet ready to destroy the descendants of David. He had, after all, promised to keep a light burning for David and his sons. That's the the message translation of that passage. And we hear this again uh, throughout Scripture. We hear it in the Psalm, Psalm 89, where God says, If they, meaning these future kings, if they violate my statutes, if they don't keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod. I'll punish their iniquity with stripes. But then this, friends, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false in my faithfulness. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. That's Psalm 89, 28. So David's descendants, they fail on a massive scale to uphold God's vision of what this covenant's meant to be. And yet God's faithfulness remains secure. Friends, what does this tell you about the heart of God? It tells us this, that when you are at your very worst, God still loves you. God's love is not contingent on your performance. It flows out of who he is. And like David's descendants, yes, we're called to a life of holiness. And when we fail in sin, God in his love disciplines us, but he also calls us back to himself. God's loving faithfulness is more powerful than human sinfulness. And he stands ready and waiting to receive us, calling us back to himself. So that's the promise. This is part one, that promise. And what begins as David's idea for a building project turns into God's plan to make a covenant to David and his lineage. And it's this great picture for us of God's love and faithfulness and loyalty, even to sinful people, people like you and me, and bringing them on board, saving them, giving them new life. So what happens? Who, who's going to be the good king that will further God's plan? What's, what's going to be the fulfillment of the, of the covenant? And that question is left hanging over the whole Old Testament. How will David's throne be established forever? 
You know, as these kings uh, continue to go into idolatry, continue to lead the, the country astray, eventually God says, you know, enough is enough. And he takes the people into exile. He removes them from the temple, from the land, from the city, and, and makes them back into this nomadic people under occupation in order to discipline them in love. But it's for a season. And then he calls them back to himself because he loves them. So in Israel, when we get to the end of the Old Testament, uh, they're, they're not in great shape. There's no king and they're waiting wondering who who's going to fulfill this long expected covenant to David who how will his throne be established forever who are we and that question is left hanging until you get to the writers of the gospels and the new testament gospel writers say let me tell you who fulfills the covenant so Matthew, for instance, he starts his gospel with a long genealogy. And this can seem kind of strange to us. Like, what a, what a boring way to start, right? Why start with a boring list of names? You know, why not start with a miracle or an action scene? You know, or why not start with a healing or someone speaking in tongues or a prophecy or something dramatic and exciting, right? Why a genealogy? Matthew starts this way because he wants us to see clearly that Jesus is related back to Abraham. And right in the middle of that family line, who do we find? We find King David. Matthew is alerting the reader to the fact that Jesus is of the line of David and of Abraham. And if you know Israel's scriptures, this should cause us to pause and say, wait a minute, does this mean that Jesus could be the one to fulfill God's promise to David. Will Jesus be the one somehow to rule over God's people forever? And the gospel writers say, yes. Luke, for instance, says, remember what the angel said in Luke 1, 32, 33, Jesus will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God, remember this, will give to him the throne of his father, David. And now you know why. Luke is drawing our attention, pointing with Jesus all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. In Jesus, God is fulfilling his covenant to David. Jesus is the long-awaited, good and godly king from the line of David. And now say the gospel writers. Let me show you what kind of king he really is. He's the king that will die for you. He's the king who disabled the power of sin and evil through an act of sacrificial love. And he's the king who God has now raised to new life. He's wounded and victorious for death. So that now there is one from David's line who does sit eternally on the throne, Jesus Christ the Lord. And this, they add, is the most surprising thing about Jesus. Not only is he a son of David fulfilling the covenant, but he's also son of the Most High God. He's God become human. And God did this so that he would become the faithful covenant partner that we were made to be and yet failed to be time and time again.
so that now through Jesus, God has opened the way for anyone and everyone to be in renewed partnership with him, coming to him in faith, receiving his forgiveness. And despite all our failures, Jesus himself is committed to making us into people who are becoming more and more faithful. Paul summarizes all of this in Romans 1, 1 to 7. He says, we're writing concerning Jesus, God's son, who was descended from David. See, Paul points us back to this passage again, according to the flesh. But he was also declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And now through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong in Christ. This is Paul in Romans 1. In Christ, who fulfills the Davidic covenant, we have received God's grace, his unmerited favor, and he calls us now to live in obedience, not a legalistic confining thing, but a joyful and abundant life where we choose the good and share that with the world, inviting people into God's love. So Jesus fulfills the promise to David, but he does so much more, friends. His death makes it possible for us to come out of our sin and back into God's presence, back into a restored relationship with the Father, back into a renewed partnership. And that's why the Bible calls the work of salvation in our lives a work of new creation. Remember how David wanted to build the temple. He wanted a, a new dwelling place for God. Well, what's interesting is Jesus, he fulfills this desire too. Jesus didn't build God a new physical temple building. In fact, he claimed that he was the temple, that in him the fullness of God's presence dwelt. And in him, we behold the very glory of God, says John in John 1, full of grace and truth. And here's the exciting bit, friends. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus now lives in you. He lives in us, his church. And that means we now have become the temple. The church is now the place on earth where God primarily dwells and makes his presence known. It's a temple not made from human hands, but God is now revealed in the corporate life of those who have been transformed by Christ. So the presence of God is, is found in, in our worship, in the preaching of the word, in baptism and communion, in discipleship and service and outreach and proclamation and all of these ways. These are the sources through which God's presence and glory are extended into the world. It's temple work. And this is why Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple? How are we God's temple? Because the Holy Spirit of God now dwells in you. So amazingly, David's desire for God to have a new dwelling, a new temple, is also deeply fulfilled through Christ, though not in a way anyone could have imagined. And now the church, filled with the Spirit of God, is called to be witnesses of God. Friends, we're called to live out his goodness and his holiness and joy. We're called to invite everyone to receive God's grace 
and receive his forgiveness and enter into new life. This is why coming to church is not so much the point, but being the church is. We, and we can only actually be the church as a gathered community together. And all of this points to the fact that there really, there really is no such thing as a healthy lone wolf Christian. It's just not biblical. You won't find this in scripture. Because God doesn't want just a collection of individuals. He's creating a family. He's creating a community. And that's the church. And we here, even in Dryden, we get to participate in this radical mission of God to reconcile and restore the world to himself. We get to carry God's presence in us, a temple presence, so that wherever we go, people can encounter the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. So first part, God makes a covenant with David, a promise to establish his kingship forever. Second part, we find that Jesus fulfills that Davidic covenant. And it it brings great blessing to each and every one of us. Thirdly, as we wrap up, what does it all mean for us? We've heard a great promise. We've seen Christ's fulfillment. What does all this mean? Three things. An invitation, an assurance, and a promise. First, what does it mean? It means an invitation. David wanted to build a house, but God had something much bigger in mind. And we are invited in this story to also have an open posture, to have our hands open before the Lord and saying, God, here are my plans, but I ask you to sanctify them. I ask you to change them, to point me in the direction that would help me to participate in what you want to do in the world. We are invited through David in this passage to have an open-handed yes to what God would do in our lives. An invitation. Secondly, we receive an assurance. How awesome is it that God has no problem taking broken and imperfect people and using them to fulfill his plan? I find this quite, uh, quite humorous sometimes, but quite good because I need this. If David qualifies to be used of God, then actually you and I qualify too. When we are now in Christ, God doesn't see our failures so much as he sees a son and a daughter whom he deeply loves and forgives and brings to new life. So first, there's an invitation in this passage for us to be open to what God would do in our lives. Secondly, an assurance that even here as as God made this promise uh, with with people that would would fail him. God's steadfast love remained for them. How awesome is it that God has no problem taking these broken and perfect people and using them to fulfill his plan. That's the assurance. Thirdly, and finally, a promise. Jesus has fulfilled this Davidic covenant, this promise to David. And because of that now in him, you can have a restored relationship with God. Jesus is the bloodied and victorious king. He has disabled the power of sin and death so that you can be free and receive eternal life, not just life everlasting, but an abundant new quality of life here and now. And Jesus stands ready to welcome you into his new covenant family. If you've never received him today, I invite you to come to him. Make him your Lord. 
Ask Him to be the Lord of your life, to take your sin. Turn to Him and follow Him. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. Perhaps you've known Him and walked with God for many years. Then I pray that this passage would encourage and strengthen you. An invitation to be open-handed to what God would do. An assurance that even with sinful broken people, God's steadfast love remains and he will take you and I and weave us into the good plans he has. And thirdly, the promise that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's turn to Christ in faith and follow him, the risen Lord and Savior. Amen.